G'day guys, how you going? My name's Wayne. Uh, some of you know me, some of you won't. Uh, I'm here to do the sermon today as the more astute you have probably realised by now. Um, so I'm going to be speaking on David and Goliath. So I'm going to I'm gonna do two I'm going to do today and then I'm going to do next week as well, but that's only as good as your last sermon. So if, if this is a disaster and I crash and burn, and you see someone up here next week, someone else up, then um, this one didn't cut the mustard. But uh, this, this week I'm going to talk about David and Goliath, and what I'm going to try and bring out, out of that is, um, is basically courage and suffering. And next week, probably going to talk about David and Jonathan, and that's going to be about humility. And courage and suffering and humility are not things I know a lot about. So that's probably the wrong guy doing it. Um, just want to tell you before we get started, um, I've had a little bit of a health issue for the last probably month where my brain's a bit scrambled. I'm on drops for glaucoma. I've lost a bit of sight. And so I'm sort of doing this, it's kind of through a bit of a fog. Um, so I'm quite interested. I've talked to Craig about it, so we're quite interested how this goes. Um, but in some ways it's good, because if I say something really dumb, or I convert you all to Buddhism, um, you can't really give me a hard time, because it's just, you know, I'll just, we'll just flame my head. Um, so um, we'll, we'll see how we go, but... Um, yeah, it's just, it's a weird feeling. So if I do stumble a bit or, or say something stupid, just give me a bit of grace on it. Um, thanks, Craig, for pushing the sausage sizzle. Um, me and Blair, I think Blair's here, and Pete, and Barney Smith, and Matt Bourne, we've been doing a sausage sizzle down the town. And the idea for that actually come from this church. So I was listening to one of Craig's sermons one time, and um, he was talking about how we externally we're going to get out and do stuff. And I've been thinking about doing something for a while, and, and then I talked to, I think, Blair... Him and me were going for a few walks and we talked about it a bit and then I sort of hadn't got it and then I talked to Pete Scarlett and said, oh, I'll help you get it started. So basically it's, um, we just go down there, there's no agenda, it's not a Christian thing, it's not a religious thing, just go and give away a sausage, you know. Sometimes everyone needs a free sausage. Um, I'd li like to thank the people from the church, a lot of you just have come down and supported it and it was good to have a bit of a crowd at the start so people don't feel uncomfortable. Um, so I really appreciate that. Um, so you're welcome to keep coming down, there's no preaching down there. Okay, well you can come down and preach, you're just not allowed to talk, because we've had enough of Christianity probably sometimes with preaching, with talking, and maybe we start doing it with actions, eh? So I just want to start here with, uh, can everyone hear me okay? Is it a bit echoey or something, or is it just me? So I just want to start a little bit with, uh, we're going to be reading from the scriptures in Samuel, and I just want to give you a little bit of an idea of how I view the scriptures, so you get an idea of how, how, I, how I do these things and how I think. Because a lot of people, a lot of people will read the scriptures literally, you know, um, or they'll look at it symbolically or mythically or figuratively. There's, there's all these ways that you can read it. Western Christianity, from what I can see, seems to mostly focus on it as literal. And a lot of people say it's the literal and fallible word of God, you know. So I'm struggling with some of that a little bit, I guess. I look at it, uh, and I wonder if sometimes the way we read the scriptures can be unhelpful and and often divisive, and we've got, what, 10,000 different denominations out there, and we all think we're right. So, you know, I, I, I struggle with some of the way that we view the Scriptures. So I want to let you know how I view it, so that you understand where this is coming from. I read the Scriptures for its transformational aspect. So what I, what I do with the Scriptures, I read it so that it can transform us or me from who I am now into who I should be. So that's what I try to take out of it. I look at the look at the story or the message and what, what's it going to do. I see the scriptures as a signpost, 
It's a signpost that points in a direction, okay, where it gives you a message. And to me, if the direction doesn't point to Christ, and if the message doesn't line up with what he says about how we should live and the way that he lived, then I often wonder if we're interpreting it right. So I line the scriptures up against the life of Christ, not the other way around. That's just, so that's, as we go forward, that gives you an idea of how I, I guess, how I see things. So we're going to be reading from 1 Samuel, chapter 17. And um, so if you've got a Bible, turn to that if you want to, or I'll just, you can just listen to me. So it's the story of David and Goliath, and I guess a lot of you probably know it, eh? It's a pretty well-known story, but we're going to start, we've got a battle scene. So um, we've got a hill there, a hill there, and a valley in the middle, and we've got an army camped on each side. We've got the Philistines on one side, and we've got the um, Israelites, or I'll probably call them the Israelis on the other side. So we've got the Israelites and the Philistines, and there's a valley in the middle, kind of like out of Lord of the Rings, or if you're like me and Grant Hatchell, the Battle of Hoth and Star Wars or something. Um, so we've, that, that sets the scene, so we've got, a, we've got a, a, a battle about to start. So we'll start reading from verse 4. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out from the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves. I still don't know what a greave is, and don't yell it out, I don't care. And a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. So out of this here, what is these six cubits in a span? So I looked that up on Google, as you do, and that's three meters. So that, that's really high, eh? Like, that's, that's getting up to there. So that's a seriously big dude that's walking out there from, he, I guess he's the champion of their army. Okay? Verse 8. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him, him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul, who was the king, and the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening, and he took his stand. So I think that's quite incredible, 40 days, eh? So you've got an army here and an army here and a valley in the middle, and they're just hanging around for 40 days, looking at each other, okay? You've got this guy, Goliath, so he walks out, might be his job for the day, he walks out, stands there, says his thing, look around, no one comes along, he goes back, puts the billy on, they probably play some cards or do whatever they're going to do. And I think it's quite interesting because like 40 days is a long time. We had COVID, lock, lockdown was 30 days. It seemed like an eternity, man. And so this is 40 days of two armies there. There's not a lot of appetite for a fight, is there? You know, these guys don't want to fight. That's pretty obvious because otherwise they'd just go and fight. So they're sitting there and they're thinking, they're probably thinking, man, I hope no one comes out to fight them. I hope we can just keep this going for another couple of months. So um, it, it just find, I find it interesting that they would rather, I guess they're all sitting there thinking, the, the Philistines will be thinking, I hope someone does come out and fight him, because this big dude, he's probably going to kill him, and then we're not going to have to fight. So if we don't have to fight, we're not going to get maimed or killed, and we'll, we'll get to win the battle without having the war. And the Israelis are probably thinking the same thing. So I just think it's a really interesting part of the story. Like, none of them seem to want to fight, you know? There doesn't seem a lot of appetite for a fight. So that's where we are at the moment. So the, we're in a standoff in this battle. So now we're going to fast forward, and now David comes into the scene. So David, he's the hero of the story. He comes in, and he's, um, 
He's been at home with his old man, and he's been, you know, feeding the, the sheep and the goats and that sort of thing. And his old man sends him down with some bread and cheese to take him down to his brothers. His brothers are in the army, you see. So they shoot on down. He goes down, he drops off the bread and cheese, and he gets talking to his brothers, as you do, being brothers. And now we uh, come back into the story. David's in the story. He's been talking to his brothers. We come in at verse 23. So as David was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance. And David heard him, heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and exempt his family from taxes in Israel. Well, I think that's another interesting point, isn't it? Because like, we've spent a lot of billions of dollars on COVID over the last couple of months. And we're going to have some big taxes coming up. So I think it would be, you know, for any situation, any family to be exempt from taxes, that's a bit of a, that's a, bit of a plus. The daughter, I don't know. It depends on what the daughter's like, I guess, whether or not that's a plus. You'd have to ask the guys that are looking at doing it. Um, you know, you know she, she could be a bit of a writer. She might not be. But... Um, I think it's a really interesting point, and it just goes to show the culture and the difference of the story of what this has played out in compared to where we are now, at least in New Zealand, because sort of a guy just gives his daughter away, you know? I think that's, um, yeah, it's, 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 um, I think it's an interesting point that, that in most of human history, especially in this situation and lots of the Old Testament, that woman... And girls have just been treated as chattels. You know, they're just there, given away for sex or marriage or whatever. And this is this is the way the culture was. And um, I just think it's an interesting part of the story. You know, we look at this and he, Saul's just going to give his daughter away. And, you know, we sometimes think the world's a lot worse now, don't we, than what it used to be. But in some ways, it's a hell of a lot better because we've got a lot more. We've, got, we've come a long way with equality and we've got a long way to go. But I'm a bit of a feminist with stuff like this. And um, I, I think I'm a, I'm a fan of feminism and the Me Too movement, and we've got a long way to go yet to get equality. And there's a lot of people are still around the world right now in countries where women are just treated as a chattel. And as Christians, I think we should be looking at doing something about it. You know. So anyway, so that's what's happening. They've, they've, David's been talking to his brothers. They've been listening to the story. And they've been seeing what Goliath's going to do, and. He now knows what the you know that he could get his daughter in marriage and exempt from taxes and all that. I don't know if David's much into that. I don't know. The story doesn't tell us. But David listens to all this and asks questions, and his brothers start giving him a hard time because brothers always give brothers a hard time, don't they? Eh? And of course, David's a little brother, and there's no one more obnoxious than a little brother, you know. And anyone who's an older brother knows that. So you just treat your little brother like that. No matter how old they get, they still don't know as much as you do, do they? You know, they're just they're always the little brother. So he's been, he's been talking to his brothers and his brothers, says, who's this young upstart? And David might have been boasting a bit or Scott, man, I could take this guy on, I'm a bit of a man. You know, so we don't know what he was saying. But now we come back into the story at verse 29 in this situation. Now what have I done, said David? Can't I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter and the men answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, Man, you're flipping nuts. He didn't actually. He says, Saul replied, You are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, and he, he has been a warrior from his youth. 
But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion and a bear came and carried off the sheep in the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed the lion and the bear. This dude will be just like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. So Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic, put a coat of armor on him, and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around, but he couldn't because he wasn't used to them. I can't go, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to these. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand. He chose five smooth stones from the stream. He put them in his pouch, shepherd's pouch, and with a sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. Verse 41. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with a shield-bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over, and he saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give you your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with the sword and the spear and the javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give your carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give, it, he will give all of it into our hands. As the Philistines moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet him. So now we're getting to the crux of it, eh? So Dave's, young Dave's all ready to go. He's got his gear, he's got his stones and his sling, and he's going to go. And this is an interesting part. I think this is a, an interesting verse, eh? As Goliath moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly towards the battle line. You know, if it was me, I think I'd be dragging my heels a bit. And I'd be thinking, you know, every, every five minutes longer it takes me to get there is another five minutes I'm alive. I just, I don't know if I'd be running, you know? That running shows a bit of confidence, doesn't it? Don't know if I'd have that confidence, but I wonder about that running, and it makes me makes me wonder where that running come from. And it, we talked in the verse before about God is saying the battle is the Lord's, and He's doing it. He's got God on His side, basically. He's got God on His side, and the battle is the Lord's. And now, what does that mean? Because you know, I've been around this Christian thing for a while, and I've heard a lot of stuff said about God, and God gets blamed for a lot of stuff that I don't think He's involved with sometimes. But I wonder what. David means when he says the battle is the Lord's and he talks about God. I think that David feels like when he says God is on his side, he feels like justice and goodness and rightness and truth are on his side and on the side of the Israel army. And that's why God is on his side, which is kind of an interesting point as we go into battle and we go and do all of these things that, you know, we often do say that God is on our side and we all assume sometimes that God's on our side. And I guess we can line that up and see. If God's on our side, does that include justice? Does that include goodness? Does that include truth? Because those, all those things are part of God. And if those things aren't there, then maybe we need to have another wee look at it, eh? But anyway, David felt like that God was on his side and he was on the side of truth and goodness. So he's running, he's running, and he's got a fair bit of confidence. And I wonder if it's confidence not so much that he might not survive it, but more he thinks that I'm on the right side, I'm doing the right thing, you know? Anyway, so he's coming up, he gets up closer to, to Goliath, verse 49. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. 
the stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down to the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone without a sword in his hand and he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran over and stood over him. He took a hold of the Philistine's sword and he drew it from its sheath and after he killed him, he cut off his head. It's awful, isn't it? Imagine that. Cutting off his head. So I've been in, um, I remember as a young fella at Sunday school and Milton listened to the story. And it was kind of like a big cheer, eh, you know? So you have a, yeah, David, he's cut off Goliath's head. I just want to have a look at this from the position of Goliath's mum for a minute. And I know it sounds funny, but I don't actually mean it to be funny. Because I just think it's an interesting point that I'd never heard anyone bring up. Because Goliath was someone's little boy at some stage. Now, I know he's about 25 kilos when he was born, and his mum never walked well for a while. But... He's still someone's little boy, you know. He's, he's, still a, he's still a boy. Everyone's got a mother. And see, we're looking at this story from a particular viewpoint. So, of course, yeah, David cuts his head off. Man, this is awesome. But, you know, I wonder what the other camp were thinking. You know, I wonder what David's mum and his mates were thinking. You know, did Goliath's mum cry, you know? Was she really upset? And what, we don't even really know that much about Goliath. Maybe he was manipulated into the situation. For all we know, he was unwell. Maybe he was... He was so big and, and that sort of thing, but he, he was sort of forced into it. He might not have had a lot of mental ability. He might have been just good for fighting, and they used him as, the, as their trophy to do it. We just don't know, you know. So I'm a wee bit reluctant to cheer too hard for David when he hacks his head off, you know. I'm just thinking of Goliath's mum. You know, there's always, we're very wise when we look at all of these stories to make sure that there is another angle to look at it. It doesn't change what it is, but there is another angle to look at it, you know, and I think um, Goliath's mum was probably pretty sad. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. The dead were strewn across the Sharon road to Gath and to Ekron. When the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered their camp. I bet they did. Then David took the Philistines' head and he took it to Jerusalem. It's just hideous, isn't it? Imagine that, picking up this, and it'd be a big head. Like, you'd probably be counting in two hands, wouldn't you? It's not just a nice, like, add decent heads. You just pick up with one hand and walk along. It's probably a, it's a big head to cart around. So he's carting this head, takes it to Jerusalem. Okay? So that's the story of David and Goliath. Okay? It's a great story, isn't it? You know, it's, it's one of the more famous stories, I guess, from the Old Testament, probably the whole of the Scriptures. And I, so I look at that story and I think, now what can we learn from it, you know? I talked about the transformational aspect. What can we get out of that story? What does it mean? You know, what, what's the great value that we can get from it? Okay, so I look at it and I think the key, the key thing I guess that I get for it, from it is courage. And it's courage to take on suffering. Okay? David was courageous. And he was courageous to take on suffering. I want to talk a little bit about courage. I want to give an example of courage. Okay, I want a, an explanation, sorry. And this is from G.K. Chesterton, who's one of the, probably the more famous writers of the world, someone who I admire greatly. Courage is almost a contradiction in terms. It means a strong desire to live, taking the form of a readiness to die. He that will lose his life, the same shall save it, is not a piece of mysticism for saints and heroes, it is a piece of everyday advice for sailors and mountaineers. A man cut off by the sea may save his life. 
if he will risk it on the precipice. He can only get away from death by constantly and continually stepping within an inch of it. A soldier surrounded by enemies, if he is to cut his way out, needs to combine a strong desire for living with a strange carelessness about dying. He must not merely cling to life, because then he will be a coward, and he will not escape. He must not merely wait for death, for then he will be a suicide and will not escape. He must seek his life in the spirit of furious indifference to it. He must desire life like water and yet drink death like wine. And that's Chesterton telling us there, uh, giving an explanation of the, I guess, the anomaly around courage of what it is. It's, the, it's the, the wanting to hold on to something so much that you're prepared to sacrifice the thing that you're holding on to. So when we have, we look at the story of David and we look at the, the story of courage, it's the, it's the sacrifice of something of ourselves for something else, okay? It's, um, it's sacrificing some of ourselves, potentially something of ourselves, for something else or someone else. And this is why I think Saul comes across so badly in the story, why he's painted as a coward, because we, we see in the earlier text that we read, he's standing there and he's just trembling, he doesn't want to do anything, you know, there's no action. He's so concerned about himself, he's so internally focused on his own, I guess, well-being and his own safety that he's unwilling to risk his life. We see him as a coward in the story. And this is why David comes across so well in the story and why he comes across as the hero because he seems unconcerned about his life compared to the big picture. He's so externally focused on doing what's right and serving others that he's willing to sacrifice even his own life. You know, there's someone else in Christianity that we're getting close to when you start looking at that too, isn't it? You know? Because in both of the instances of David, with the bear and the lion and the Goliath, he isn't being courageous for himself. He's being courageous for something else. So we've got the lion and the bear, so young Dave's there looking after the flock. The lion and the bear come along. They try, man, if I was at a wool shed and we had 500 ewes sheared up and a lion comes along, he wouldn't see me for dust, man. I'd be out of there. But David, for whatever reason, he's there and he's going to take them on. And we don't know exactly what the rationale for that, but I, I would imagine those flocks were really important. It might even have been the difference between living and dying, life and death, having the resources, the wool, the milk, the meat. You know, so it was obviously very important. So for whatever reason, he could have done a runner. He didn't need to go and chase that lion down that had a sheep in its mouth, but he chose to. He did something, not for his own game, but something else. He showed courage. He potentially took on suffering by getting maimed or killed to go and do something. Same with Goliath. He was down there as just a young whippersnapper, wasn't he? No one expected him to do anything, so he's down there. Um, brothers think he's useless, so he's not going to let anyone down. But he thinks, you know, I don't like this. He's, I'm looking at there, looking at the armies here. There's a lot of inaction, and, and this guy's belittling my nation and my God and my brothers and my families for doing something. This isn't right, okay? He's risking but something I should do. I'm going to have a crack at something. You know? So this is what I think fundamentally the message of the story says. David looked at the world. He looked at the reality of the world. He looked at the reality of the lion and the bear and the flocks and everything that goes with that, his family's fortune and livelihood. He looked at Goliath and the armies of Israel and he looked at the whole big picture that it was just an absolute shambles probably. You know? No one was stepping up. He looked at the world, the reality of the world. He made courageous judgment call and we can make judgment calls and we can make courageous judgment calls he made a courageous judgment call to risk things and he willingly took on potential suffering 
He could have been maimed or killed or hurt or even significantly embarrassed, you know. He willingly took on potential suffering in order that something good might come, okay? So walking out into the unknown, that's, that's what David's doing when he goes out to take on Goliath. He's walking into the unknown because he doesn't know what the result's going to be. I know he's got his faith in God, but I'd say he was going out there and he would still probably be pretty scared. I know all of us would be, eh? So he's walking out to take on his giant. And then we've got to look at this around and think, well, what's our giants? What's the things that we're going to take on? You know, what's your giant? What's the thing that you have to add into the unknown to take on? What do you have to take on? Where does your battle lie? Where does my battle lie? How much uncertainty and how much suffering are we prepared to take on in order to do the thing that we should do and the thing that the world needs us to do, you know? How much suffering are we prepared to take on to do the thing that we should do? You know, my favourite author, he's a guy, Frederick Beekner. Awesome, awesome books. And he's got a great saying that um, goes like this here. Frederick says, where your great hunger, where the thing that you really, really want to do, where your great hunger and the world's great need, the thing that the world really needs, ultimately, fundamentally needs, where those two meet, that's the thing you should do. And that's a really good way to find out the thing you should do. I think there's a lot of truth in that saying that Frederick says. Where your great hunger and the world's great need meet, that is the thing that you should do. You know, there's something in suffering, isn't there? David took on, he potentially took on suffering to go and do something. There is something in suffering in voluntarily taking on that suffering, all the suffering of others, that not only transcends, it not only inspires, and not only elevates, it not only encourages, but in some way that I don't really understand, it really makes us fully human. There's something about taking up our suffering and going with it and taking on someone else's suffering and going forward with it that we become our most human, our most truly human. And we only need to look at some of the great figures of our history, don't we? We look at Nelson Mandela, and he could have come out of that prison cell with a very different attitude, you know. In some way, he took on a suffering. We look at Gandhi, you know. What Gandhi did was amazing. He, he voluntarily took on suffering. We look at Martin Luther King, you know. I remember I was at Washington last year in, in America, and I saw that statue to Martin Luther King, and it just... The story staggers me, how he just decided he let those white pricks beat them up with sticks. And he just said, no, nah, we're not going to respond. We're going to love these guys into coming back to us. And that, that's just such a powerful message, you know, that racism and so much of it was ingrained into the Christian faith there. And he just, no, nah, we're going to love these guys. We're going to love them. He voluntarily took on suffering. And look what he did. And, look, and it's still happening. And it still needs to happen, you know. There's something about taking on that suffering that's really important. And I just, I just think of uh, a personal story with my mum. You know, my mum passed away a while ago, and she she had a tough life. Eh? By anyone's standards in New Zealand, you would say her life was right at the top end of suffering. She had a huge amount of mental illness, and eventually she ended up in a rest home in Dunedin. And she was she was in a chair. She couldn't lie in a bed. She had to sit in a chair. She couldn't do anything. She had to be lifted off the chair and taken to the toilet and someone would wipe her bum. She used to hate that, and I get that. And she just, she had a really, really tough life. All of her life, in the end of it, she had so very little left. And she was so cheerful all the time. She used to drive me nuts. 
she was so so cheerful. She handled it so well. And I went to see her this time, and I'd been diagnosed with my eyes, and I wasn't feeling pretty good, you know. And I went there and wanted to see mum. So I went to see mum, and we were sitting there talking, and um, we're sitting there just talking the way you do with your mum. And I heard this noise coming from the other room. It was like this. It goes, ah, ah, just a noise like that there. And I said to mum, mum, what's and after a few times, what's going on? She said, and you, you know the way her mum said, no, listen, Wayne. It was usually, you know, Wayne, you're in trouble. But she looked at me over the top of her glasses. And I was, yeah, I don't think I'll ever forget this. And she said, oh, Wayne, she said, that lady, she's got such a tough life. She has to lie on a bed. She can only move one arm. And her husband comes with a her every now, not very often. And she can't really sit up. She has to lie on a bed all day and only move one arm. And she said, man, some people have got it tough. And I was looking at mum, and mum had it tough. And she was talking about this woman, about, and mum said, I can sit in a chair, I've got a window to look out of, I can do my knitting. It's not much. It's actually not that much. And then she said to me, and this is, this is something that I'll never, ever forget. She said to me, you know, Wayne, sometimes I pray that God would change me with that woman. And that, um, and that I could swap places with her because I've got so much. <coughs> yeah. You know, um, sometimes you know you're in the presence of the saint, eh? I walked out of that room that time and um, it's all about perspective, isn't it? You know? all about perspective I walked out of that thinking my life's pretty good man my life's pretty good I love my mum you know that's just another example and that there will be replicated around this room all the time and there's so many people could tell stories like that and maybe many of you are those people and you probably are but there's something about voluntarily taking your suffering uncomplainingly and then trying to take on other people's that we're getting to the essence of the Christian faith and it's something that makes us very human. You know, the older thinkers used to say that David was like Christ, you know, and I never really got it for a long time because in many ways, David was a bit of a mongrel, eh? You know, and he treated a lot of people really badly. You know, we're going to see that as we track through the, through the series, you know. He, he wasn't all that in a bag of chips, man. You know, but where, where David's life lines up with the life of Christ, it's around the courage to take on other people's suffering at the expense of their own security and safety, you know? And then, of course, that's where his life lines up with Christ, but, and then, of course, there is Christ, you know? Then, of course, there is Christ, and he was described as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and they might just about be the truest words ever spoken, eh? And this is where I feel we're getting to the crux of our faith, you know? Because it ain't about religion or Christianity or dogma, being right or more right than some other person or group and it ain't about sexuality or gender or freedom or politics prosperity or property and as good as the story is it ain't about the story it isn't about David I sometimes wonder if all of this is just background noise and if someday we'll see it as irrelevant and the disagreements and arguments and wars and deaths that have been caused by it is so pointless and so pathetic because the hope of our faith is not in all those things 
It's simply in a man. It's simply in a man who claimed to be a God. And he lived out his life uncompromisingly with courage and conviction. And you know, the thing he asked us to do, the thing that Jesus asks us to do, requires great courage. And to do it properly, we must be prepared to lose our lives so that we can gain them. Just like David. And what must surely rate is the worst call to action ever in history. Jesus said seven simple words. Take up your cross and follow me. When he talks about taking up your cross and following me, this is what I think he means. To me, he means that we take up our own suffering uncomplainingly and we take on the suffering and the pain of others where we can and we live the way Jesus lived with regards to looking out for and loving other people. And that takes courage. Man, that takes courage. Take up your cross and follow me, says Christ. I wonder if he meant it.